Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The movie uh, spoke to me. And when I took up my own nonfiction version of Fight Club, um, I had been dealing with this stuff for about 20 years, this, this sense that... This is actually dangerous to talk about this stuff now, but I, but I didn't know what to do with my masculinity. This is Jonathan Gottschall. He's a writer and a former English professor. A few years ago, he decided to start studying something new, something that he later wrote a whole memoir about. Fighting. And specifically, mixed martial arts which ultimately led him to his first and only cage match, which ended in a loss after 47 seconds, which was okay for one important reason. There is no shame in boy culture or man culture in losing a fight. What there is shame in is backing down from the fight. I remember one time, not very long ago, you know, there's sort of a road rage incident where this guy just lost his mind and, you know, tried to fight me in traffic um, and was telling me he was going to kill me. And, you know, I didn't engage in this, but I, and I went home and I stood in the mirror looking at myself and I knew I had absolutely done the right thing. There was, there was no point whatsoever in getting involved in this fight. It would be stupid, barbaric, idiotic, um, dangerous. Uh, there's no reason to do it. Yeah, I looked at myself in the mirror and I hated myself. Somewhere deep down inside me, I knew that the only correct thing was to get out of the car and punish this reprobate. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, it's like having this part of yourself that knows intellectually the right way to behave and the good way to behave and, the, and having this other part of yourself that is so deeply steeped in either the biology or the culture of masculinity that, that, it, that, it, that I don't even know how to put it, but that you're just confused, <laughs> you know? You're just confused. Stupid, <laughs> stupid as hell. Right. But there you have it. Tyler Durden's in the background shaking his head at you. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Or your Tyler, whoever your Tyler Durden is. Right. Is there laughing right. at you. But yeah, and it's hard. Yeah, I, I like, yeah, I, I know what that feels like. Yeah. Somewhere deep down, we all have it in us. We all have a part of ourselves that knows the right thing to do, 
and a reactive animal part of ourselves that doesn't want to listen. It's not just men, but this story is about men. And maybe you're already thinking, well, I don't identify as a man, or I don't identify as that kind of man. Why should I care? And you're right. Except that men's problems have a way of becoming everybody else's problem too. And it's been like that more or less since we moved away from the whole hunting and gathering thing. Even in a rapidly changing world, men still generally benefit the most from the way things are and suffer the least. But lately, some people have started pointing out just how much men have to answer for. And because of that, some of them have started walking around like they're the real victims. And the fact that they're mad about that has also become everybody else's problem. Dude, you want to step outside? You want to step outside? Just go ahead and attack me, big the West has lost faith in the idea of masculinity. and That's no different than the death of God. Two New Jersey men are facing assault charges on Maryland's eastern shore after getting into a violent confrontation at a girls' softball tournament. But you're not going to be done until somebody punches you in the mouth. You ready for it? Yeah, I'm ready. What I want to call out tonight is that the deconstruction of America begins with and depends on the deconstruction of American men. Way back in 1996, a writer from Portland, Oregon named Chuck Palahniuk wrote a book about what might happen if enough disaffected men got together and decided to take it out on society. He called it Fight Club. Good title, right? You could tattoo it on your knuckles if you had an extra middle finger. In the 90s, this story seemed far-fetched to a lot of people. A weird, violent fantasy. Or maybe a satire of what happens when you let masculinity off the leash. These days, it seems eerily predictive of where everything was actually going, even if we couldn't see it at the time. This season on The Big Hit Show, we're looking at the fucked up crystal ball that was Fight Club and what we still miss about what it has to say. There's this sense by around the mid-90s that the power was no longer in governments. The power was in corporations, in brands, and that this hadn't been challenged. He just announced to us that he was going to write a book and it was going to sell, goddammit, within that year. And that was Fight Club. <laughs> I remember being on set with Brad Pitt. I said, we're going to change the world with this film. And he said, we might not change the world, but we're certainly going to shake it up. We're in the elevator and Fincher goes, get ready. I'm like, ready for what? He goes, they're going to come after us. I didn't think we'd fail as badly as we did. So that's pretty like, wow, <gasps> choked, died. Masculinity is a lot like Fight Club. The first rule is that you don't talk about it. From Higher Ground, this is The Big Hit Show. I'm Alex Papadimus. 
This is, of course, a show about big hits. And at first, that is not what Fight Club was. Chuck Palahniuk's novel sold less than 5,000 copies when it was published in 1996. And while the idea of God-tier director David Fincher teaming up with a shirtless Brad Pitt may sound today like a license to print money, the movie version of Fight Club was also not a hit. It got a lot of scathing reviews, and while the film eventually did make money if you count international ticket sales, it flopped in America. Stuart Little made more money domestically than Fight Club. So did Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo. The film didn't really find an audience until it was released on home video. After that, it became an underground hit and eventually a cultural touchstone. According to David Fincher, people bought 13 million copies of the Fight Club DVD. For a lot of people, including a lot of young, often angry, often isolated guys, getting super into Fight Club the movie, like Fight Club the Fight Club, was like joining a secret society that made everything make sense. And more than two decades later, people have never stopped talking about Fight Club. In this episode, we're going to talk about why we can't stop talking about Fight Club. From the twist that rewrote the story before your eyes, to the subversive use of a generation-defining movie star, to the enduring cultural relevance of the urge to fuck shit up. Chapter 1. Crystal Balls We're going to talk more in our next episode about Fight Club as a book and where it came from. But over time, the movie has kind of eclipsed the book. When we talk about Fight Club and its cultural footprint, we're usually talking about the movie. And in the course of the past two decades, Fight Club the movie has been reduced, like so many pop cultural artifacts, to a single catchphrase, its most famous line. The I'm king of the world, or you can't handle the truth, or stop trying to make fetch happen of Fight Club. Hey Alexa, tell me the first rule of Fight Club. Don't talk about Fight Club. I'm old. I no longer remember the first rule of Fight Club. In case this is all you know about Fight Club, or all you remember, we should probably start with a quick refresh on the plot. The narrator of Fight Club is a white man with a job and a nice condo. By the standards of late 20th century capitalist society, he's doing okay, but he can't fall asleep at night. Something undefinable is missing from his life, and he can't buy enough IKEA furniture to fill the hole. In the movie, he's played by Edward Norton. Norton's character doesn't have a name. He's called Jack in the script, but we're just going to call him the narrator. One day, he comes home from a business trip to find that his condo and all his nice stuff has been destroyed by a freak explosion. So he goes out for beers with a stranger he's just met on a plane. This really cool guy. And at the end of the night, when the narrator tells this guy that he needs a place to stay, the guy asks for a favor in return. He says, I want you to hit me as hard as you can. Boom. The narrator's whole life has just changed. The stranger's name is Tyler Durden. He's played by Brad Pitt. He and the narrator and some other guys start meeting every week in a bar basement to beat the shit out of each other. Tyler calls this Fight Club and he lays down a few ground rules. Here comes the catchphrase. The first rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about Fight Club. The second rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about Fight Club. Before long, there are Fight Clubs all over town. Because it turns out, there are a lot of guys who really need this, and it makes them feel better. 
the end. Just kidding. What actually happens is things get really crazy. Fight Club morphs into a kind of domestic terror organization called Project Mayhem, led by Tyler, whose short-term goal is, you guessed it, mayhem, but whose long-term goal is to wake everybody up from the dream of civilization by destroying society as we know it, striking at symbols of consumerism and eventually the institutions of capitalism itself. Fight Club, the club, turns out to have just been a way for Tyler to indoctrinate these guys and enlist them in his war on the way things are. And while that war starts with pranks, like when Tyler gets a job as a cater waiter so he can take a whiz in the soup at fancy banquets, before too long, Tyler and his gang are shaving their heads and brewing nitroglycerin in the basement and plotting grandiose property crimes that meet the definition of terrorism, even if they're designed to be bloodless. They're not trying to kill anybody, but these guys are willing to die. For Project Mayhem and for Tyler. Unquestioningly. Sir, the first rule of Project Mayhem is you do not ask questions, sir. And then they start dying. And the narrator realizes he has to stop Tyler and all this wild shit they've set in motion before it is, as they say in the movies, too late. It's an incredible plot. And I'm leaving out the craziest part, the twist that turns the story inside out. For a minute there, in the 90s, every buzzworthy movie had a big twist. The Crying Game, The Sixth Sense, The Usual Suspects. And because there was no social media to immediately spoil everything by the end of opening weekend, you could actually make movies where a big game-changing surprise was part of the experience. If this podcast were a 90s movie, you'd find out at the end that I've been dead this whole time. But the Fight Club twist kind of rules them all. It still lands. So, okay, do me a favor. If you haven't read the book or seen the movie, here's where you can pause this episode and go do that. We're going to spoil everything on the other side of this break. Holy shit, right? Tyler and the narrator are the same guy. In other words, Tyler isn't just some garden-variety movie psychopath. He's a manifestation of the part of the narrator that wants to lash out. He's the Jungian shadow self, the slim shady. And the narrator's confrontation with Tyler? It's really a showdown with his own masculinity and its destructive potential. That man in the mirror that Jonathan Gottschall talked about at the top of this episode, the one who says, you should have beaten that guy up, Tyler is that man if he could get out of the mirror and take charge sometimes. If Tyler were a person, we'd call him crazy. Because he's an imaginary friend, he's a symptom of the narrator's craziness. But as a character, he's also really compelling. And in the movie, he's played by Brad Pitt, who at the time was arguably both as cool and as hot as he has ever been. The screen presence of Brad Pitt is the X factor in Fight Club. It's a huge part of what makes this movie so combustible and unignorable. And it's also a big part of why it's so hard to pin down what Fight Club is actually trying to say. Back in 1999, on his TV show Roger Ebert and the Movies, 
The late great film critic Roger Ebert reviewed Fight Club as follows, quote, I think the opening is savage social satire, very promising. I really liked it. But then the movie switches over to stylish brutality and despair. It's kind of a quasi-fascist vomitorium. Fight Club contains the raw materials for a great film, but I don't think it has the courage to go all the way with its original vision from hell, and instead it turns into stylish macho porn and blows stuff up real good. That's one thumb way down. But when it came to hating Fight Club, Ebert was not alone. A lot of critics hated it. Rex Reed called it a film without a single redeeming quality, which may have to find its audience in hell. The London Evening Standard's Alexander Walker said, quote, It resurrects the Fuhrer principle. It promotes pain and suffering as the virtues of the strongest. It tramples every democratic decency underfoot. And a lot of other critics hated it for similar reasons. Because in their minds, by presenting brutal violence in a way that was both ugly and aesthetically dazzling, the movie seemed to be trying to have its soup and piss in it too. And although Fight Club is, as Ebert points out, a superbly well-made movie, the most aesthetically dazzling thing about Fight Club is Tyler Durden himself. Even if it's not intentional, it feels like the movie never quite falls out of love with Tyler and his ideas, even when the story becomes about the narrator trying to stop him. And that's mostly because Tyler Durden is played by Brad Pitt. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars. But we won't. We're slowly learning that fact. We're very, very pissed off. Brad Pitt has been an A-list movie star for so long that it's easy to forget that the first decade of his career was pretty up and down. After his appearance as a sexy outlaw in 1991's Thelma and Louise left everybody saying, who was that guy? He sort of bounced back and forth between good, risky movies, including David Fincher's Seven, and big studio movies that seemed to fundamentally misunderstand what he was going to be good at. His 90s career has a lot of misses in the sense that he hasn't really fully figured out his star image or how to wield his beauty. Film critic and Vulture staff writer Angelica Jade Bastian. He's just kind of figuring himself out and looking very beautiful while doing so. In 1999, when Fight Club came out, the Brad Pitt movie that would have been freshest in people's minds was 1998's Meet Joe Black, a three-hour supernatural romantic drama from the director of Gigli. The Brad who shows up to play Tyler in Fight Club is not the solemn, over-highlighted, blonde Ken doll version of Brad who walks the earth in Meet Joe Black nor is it the lovable dad pit of today. In Fight Club, Brad is 34 years old, he reportedly has between 5 and 6% body fat, and also has the swagger of someone who could talk you into making out with him in a burning dumpster. Why is Brad Pitt so good in Fight Club? Because he's so nasty and, like, deliciously venal. And, like, his beauty feels, like, so overwhelming in it. It almost feels like a corruptive force. Fincher really brought out a really great side of him. It really like sort of synthesized a lot of ideas you could see in bits and pieces earlier in his career, but hadn't like fully come together this way. Also, he's like fucking shredded in this movie. It's like crazy. I realized that after he meets Tyler, 
Tyler has to be more of an authority source than the narrator, even though the narrator would continue to narrate. The adapted screenplay that convinced 20th Century Fox to take a chance on the movie version of Fight Club was written by Jim Ools. Ool says that as he worked on the script, he realized it was necessary for Pitt's Tyler to steal the spotlight in order to counterbalance the authority the narrator automatically has because he's the person telling the audience what's what. In other words, the narrator had to go from someone who's guiding us cynically through his view of the world to being an acolyte of Tyler Durden. And we have to go with that. So how do you turn somebody who's held all the authority of your experience towards a different character? In the book, by the way, the narrator and Tyler meet on a nude beach, which would have made for a very different movie and one in which the story's homoerotic subtext, which Fincher's movie has a lot of fun with, might have been a little too close to the surface. It was Ools who decided to have them meet on a plane, where Tyler intrigues the narrator and then negs him hard. Tyler, you are by far the most interesting single-serving friend I've ever met. See, I have this thing, everything on a plane is single-serving, even the... Well, I get it. It's very clever. How's it working out for you? What? Being clever. I just wanted Tyler to leave that scene, the airplane scene, as somebody who has bedazzled Jack and totally stolen him, you know, psychologically, so that the audience would kind of get into the, ah, Tyler's, and they'd focus a little more on Tyler. Again, it helps that Brad is just a total rock star in this. In the plane scene, he's wearing two different plaids. It's a business casual acid trip. It's the way you dress when you know you can get away with anything. Jim Ools again. It wasn't until like the third draft that David and I talked about something that would just be devastating if it was coming from Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt says to him, I look like you want to look. I fuck like you want to fuck. Look like you want to look, I fuck like you want to fuck. I am smart, capable, and most importantly, I'm free in all the ways that you are not. And for an audience to see a gorgeous, capable, charismatic movie star say, I look better than you, and I fuck better than you, is in a way a radical subversion of the way movie stars are supposed to kind of be acknowledged as, you know, sure, they're good looking, but, you know, you don't see movie stars bragging about, I'm a better human being than everybody. And of course, it wasn't Brad Pitt, it was Tyler Durden, but we just thought, wow, that would have a lot of potency if he said that. We basically want them to step on our nuts, I guess, is like the non-academic way of putting it. Film critic Angelica Bastian again. I think viewing in film like does have a masochistic edge to it. And that is probably why the dynamic between him and Edward Norton works so well, and especially in that moment, is because it's like activating a certain pleasure principle that I think audiences have with stars. 
and we didn't want them relatable. We thought of them as like God. So yeah, stop on me. Tell me you can outfuck me. That's why I want to be you and I pay to go to movies and watch you. The point of building Tyler up as the coolest guy ever was to explain why the narrator's so drawn to him. But it may have worked a little too well. It complicates it. So sometimes it feels it's enamored with its own gloss to the point where it's forgetting. It's a satire and it becomes too like seduced by all the things because it puts such a beautiful face on such an ugly thing. Or an ugly idea, I should say. The last act of Fight Club is about how Tyler and Project Mayhem have to be stopped. But by then, Tyler's made his point in so many ways about why Fight Club and Project Mayhem were necessary. And the movie stops short of saying that he has to be stopped because what he's trying to do is wrong. And if decades of dudes have interpreted this movie as an uncritical endorsement of Tyler Durden and of being a Tyler Durden-type guy, that's partly because... While the movie never quite makes up its mind about Project Mayhem, it knows exactly how it feels about Tyler. He dies at the end, but the movie is gaga for him. It's totally infatuated with him. This is Lily Analik. She's a writer and a contributing editor at Vanity Fair, and she saw Fight Club in the theater in 1999. The movie is self-aware, but I feel like it's almost, the subject matter is almost too powerful just in the way that Tyler kind of hijacks the Ed Norton character's life, I mean, he hijacks the movie. He's more powerful than any anything that the movie is about. You can't get rid of him. There's even a plot point in the movie about how Tyler uses his job as a projectionist to subliminally mess with people by splicing single frames of pornography into family movies, tainting the soup of entertainment, as it were. And at the end of Fight Club, after Tyler is supposedly vanquished, blip, there's a penis. For like a second. As if Tyler has messed with this movie too. So he's a demon who hasn't been exercised. And I think it's that unresolved quality that kind of keep, keeps him, gives him his potency. Um, it's why he's so, he's stuck around. He's putting images into your head, right? His dark and alienated vision of the world is now in your head. I mean, you feel like he's like a sexually transmitted disease almost, like he's in your blood now, and that's just how it is. Sticking feathers up your butt does not make you a chicken. Things you own end up owning you. First you have to know, not fear, know that someday you're gonna die. You're the same decaying organic matter as everything else. Lines like these are part of this film's elemental power. Tyler speaks in slogans and aphorisms. He's like a sexy fortune cookie. All the things he says are sort of true, but something about the way Pitt delivers these lines makes them feel even more true. Like he's confirming something you've always known about the way the world works. But what is this movie that's so full of catchy, nihilistic axioms actually trying to say? For starters, Fight Club gets at something about us that maybe we don't all like to admit, which is that we're all angry. So much of our lives feel outside our control. We're all working harder than ever for less on a burning planet while our billionaire overlords prepare for the new life that awaits them in the off-world colonies or whatever. 
this movie is like does feel still super transgressive, super uh, of its time, but also relatable to now. This is Molly Lambert. She's a writer and a podcast host, and she's a fan of Fight Club. When people are like, Tyler Durden is a dangerous terrorist, it's like, um, he's a hero. <laughs> um, Fight Club is about, let's punch up. Fight Club isn't about punching down. It's about punching up to the banks, the people that are really fucking everybody, the people that are really making you lose your power and feel powerless in your life. It's not women and minorities. It's fucking capitalism. That's what I thought was cool about this movie, too, was I was just like, this movie is saying, like, fuck all this shit. And I agree. But here's the thing about fuck all this shit as an ideological baseline. It might be a totally valid response to the state of things, but it can take you to very different places depending on your definition of this shit and whose fault it is. Among other things, this is a show about the often unpredictable things that happen when a piece of art goes out into the world and finds its audience. Fight Club's anti-consumerist slant makes it seem like a left-leaning movie, but in the years since it came out, Fight Club has also become an ideological touchstone for people on the right, and more recently, the alt-right. People who also agree broadly with Tyler Durden's take on modern society, but have a very different idea of who's to blame for what's wrong with it. Andrew Anglin, editor of the neo-Nazi website The Daily Stormer, has said that Fight Club, quote, is and always will be the greatest movie ever made. In violent extremism, of every flavor, there's there's all these common threads, and one of the the other like main common threads of the narratives themselves is what's called a return narrative. This is Arno Michaelis. These days, he's a writer and a motivational speaker. But back in the late '80s, he was one of the leaders of a white power skinhead gang he asked us not to name, and the singer of a white power metal band called Centurion. Arno left the movement in the mid-1990s and has since rededicated his life to disarming and weakening hate groups like the one he was a part of. So if, if you listen to white nationalists, they're going to be talking about, like, we're going we're gonna to make the world white again. Um, it's, it's this idea that, there, first of all, that there was this ideal point in the past that we need to get back to. And um, in the movie, the return narrative was tied in beautifully with the idea that society is fucked. Arno says Fight Club accurately depicts the way charismatic leaders see the potency of anger in people and use it to pull them into violent extremism. He knows this because that's how he got pulled in. And then Arno did the same to other vulnerable, angry young guys. You cultivate that sense of persecution. When I was recruiting a kid back in the late 80s, and I'm talking to Joe Pissed Off White Kid, I, the first thing I want to do as I'm recruiting is I want to find out his pain point. A common complaint uh, that Joe Pissed Off White Kid has, whether it's 1987 or 2022, is I, I don't have a girlfriend. It was Arno's job to take kids who felt that kind of anger and convince them, just like Tyler does to his followers, that the thing holding them back from being the men they were meant to be was society. Capitalism. Except being neo-Nazis, when Arno and his associates said capitalism, it meant something slightly different. I tell Joe Pissed Off White Kid, 
the reason you don't have a girlfriend, white man, is because the Jews put Michael Jordan, you know, I would, I'd say LeBron James or whoever, uh, you know, according to the Times, they put them on all these billboards and magazines and TV commercials and they, they corrupt the minds of white women to make them think that these savages are the ideal men and that you're not. So the reason you don't have a girlfriend is because of the Jews. And, and as ridiculous as I hope that sounds to anybody listening <laughs> to, to you and I, it, it's, it's literally like a free pass to say, okay, I don't have to worry about this anymore. All I have to do is commit myself to defend the white race and, and everything is going to be great. That's really all it takes. You get this sense of uh, identity and a sense of belonging, and that's, that's how you go from recruit to actual you know, Project Mayhem agent. You have problems, and somebody with the right kind of personal magnetism comes along and tells you who's to blame and says, go get them. Burn it down. Burn it all down. To have watched that movie in 1999 was to have looked into a crystal ball. I mean, that is the feeling you have. Here again, Lily Analik, who wrote a Vanity Fair essay in 2021 called Fight Club and the 21st Century, how Brad Pitt, Edward Norton, and David Fincher foretold 9-11 and Trump. It is so much about 2022. Um, Maybe more about 2016, but still about 2022. If Fight Club didn't seem like it was predicting the future of American politics back in 1999, it's because in 1999, it was hard to imagine a mainstream American politician basically telling his followers to fuck shit up, let alone the actual president of the United States, the leader of the free world. I love the old days. You know what they used to do to guys like that when they were in a place like this? They'd be carried out on a stretcher, folks. Donald Trump isn't Tyler Durden, but to the people who believe in him, there's something specifically Durden-esque about his charisma. He's the guy who knows you're angry, and he's going to tell you straight up where to direct that anger. Why Donald Trump? Why did you come out here tonight? He's honest, and he's, he tells it like it is. And I just like that. There is something freeing about somebody who will just say whatever, even if you think that this person um, means the end of civilization, you know? Just freedom, like watching somebody who seems like they'll just say... And, and there was actually like a quality of like, like, a, like a Lenny Bruce or like a low comedian that Trump had and that, that even Tyler Durden has. I mean, Tyler Durden is funny. He says funny, nasty things that feel true, even though they're just kind of a... They're, they're like a scumbaggy kind of truth, but you kind of respond to them. Trump isn't the first leader to go a long way by offering quick and cathartic solutions to questions that the rest of society sort of doesn't have a better answer for. Tyler comes on like a self-help guru, but he's, he's a self-destruct guru. It's, this, it's the same as MAGA. I mean, you just feel like um, Trump does have like personal power, but it feels annihilative, you know? He, he just feels like he wants to wipe things out. It's ruling through ruin, you know? That's what MAGA seems... Um, like to me, and that's what the space monkeys are. They don't want to build anything. They want to tear, tear shit down. These leaders see people who feel lost and disenfranchised, and they tell them a good story about why that is and what they can do about it. Even if these stories are bogus, like all myths, they're filling a gap in people's understanding of why things are the way they are. And even if you reject those stories, even if you're not willing to accept a framing in which you're a space monkey or a victim of the woke mob and the only solution is breaking the world, the bigger question remains. What do we do with that part of ourselves that Jonathan Gottschall talked about seeing in the mirror? The part that just wants to fight. 
for about a million years, <laughs> men have been socialized to be men in a certain way. Jonathan Gottschall again. And this was the height of all virtues, you know, to be to be a real man, to be tough and strong and brave and uh, stoic and um, ideally kind of heroic. And suddenly, not so much anymore. Well, suddenly we're, we're sort of told that these traits of masculinity that we were pursuing and that we were trying to embody weren't so much virtues as vices. And suddenly you have this capacity, all these capacities that you've been striving for in your life to be a certain type of person, a certain type of man. And what are you supposed to do with it now that it's sort of culturally suspect? And sort of what the film is about is not really toxic masculinity or something like that, but masculinity without purpose. Um, now that the bears aren't out in the woods to be killed, now that there's no more barbarians at the gate, what are we supposed to do with these, what are we supposed to do with masculinity? Which was basically evolved and designed to deal with bears and barbarians. Next time on The Big Hit Show. Chuck Plotnick. Chuck Philandic. Chuck Palniuk. I never know if I'm saying the name right. Fight Club made writer Chuck Palahniuk into a household name. We're going to find out about the city that made him. It was cheap. And it was gritty. There was nothing to do but read and write. The society of anarchist Santas who inspired him. Wow, that would be awful if the police beat up, you know, 100 people dressed as Santa outside of the mall. And the source of the rage he put on paper. He saw himself as an outlier, and I think he was angry at the publishing world for not considering art, you know, in that way. You know, because what is art? It's subversive. From Higher Ground, this is The Big Hit Show. It's written and hosted by me, Alex Papadimus, and produced by Western Sound. Colin McNulty is our showrunner. Producers are Sabrina Fang and Taylor Jones. Our production assistant and fact checker is Stella Hartman. Alex McInnes is our composer, sound designer, and mix engineer. Studio direction and theme music by Dan Leone. The executive producer is Ben Adair. Our editor is Jamie York. Executive producers for Higher Ground are Dan Fearman, Anna Holmes, Mukta Mohan, and Janae Marable. Jen Levin is our editorial assistant. Executive producers for Spotify are Daniel Eck, Don Ostroff, Julie McNamara, and Corinne Gilliard. Special thanks to Joe Paulson and Eric Spiegelman. <laughs>